0: Good evening. I call your attention, uh, for those of you who do not yet have a rare book school brochure, to a pile of same in the back of the room, also to the seminar on the history of the book in American Culture, the program run by the American Antiquarian Society. Uh, Most of you will have been inundated by those as well already, but in the odd event that you don't have one and would like to complete your set, there are copies there. I'd also like to remind those of you who are not friends and who don't have a copy of the schedule that the next lecture in this series is next Monday, the 3rd of February, at which John Kidd, who is a fellow in the Center for Advanced Studies at the University of Virginia, will be speaking on the subject, Taking Issue with the New Ulysses. There is a clipping from the New York Times which will help to explain the title of that lecture on the descriptive bibliography bulletin board to the left of the press room, if anybody is interested. our speaker tonight, as usual, on such occasions, but especially so on this one, needs no introduction, Mr. DF Mr Mr. DF. Mackenzie.
1: next week's lecture, if not tonight's, uh, because I, uh, I uh, was in touch with uh, John Kidd, and uh, he very generously allowed me to uh, quote from some of his work in my recent lectures in London, uh, panizzi lectures, because it did seem to me that what he was saying about Ulysses in particular um, exemplified part of my argument about the importance of book form. Um... <clears throat> On the other hand, the Gabler edition also exemplified another part of my argument about the indeterminacy of texts and uh, so on. So it was rather nice, especially as I count Hans as one of my old friends, (laughs) to be able to say something on each count. Well, I'd like to begin on this topic from book to text by affirming that, of course, my own personal commitment is to the book, um, specifically in 16th to 18th century England. I take as broad a view as time and knowledge allow of its forms and its functions over those two centuries. And, of course, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of its study in all periods and a fervent believer in its power to recover the life of past societies and to chart the history of cultural change. Now, those are positions which I tried to illustrate and sustain in my talk to the BSA on Friday, and although my argument and illustrations will lead me to suggest tonight that books are not the be-all and end-all of bibliography, textual criticism, or librarianship, I want at least to begin by reaffirming our need in the editing and interpretation of texts in book form to develop a greater sensitivity than, I think perhaps... Um, we currently show to the presentational features of earlier texts and their significance for all those who first made them. Um, To do that, I've argued uh, um, on Friday and elsewhere that we must have some concept of an author's intention, uh, consider carefully the expressive functions um, of its modes of uh, transmission and account for its reception by an audience or readership. And as a locatable, describable, attributable, datable, and explicable object, um, any text as a recorded form is preeminently, I think, a bibliographical fact. Its relation to all other versions, and their relation in turn to all other recorded texts, are again preeminently bibliographical facts. And no other discipline, and certainly neither history nor criticism, commands the full range of textual phenomena or the technical scholarship to deal fully with their production, distribution, and consumption. By commanding the one term common to all inquiry, the textual object itself, um, and especially the textual object in book form, bibliography is the essential means, I think, by which we begin to recover the past. Well, now, as a way of further exemplifying one part of that argument, and just to begin tonight's talk, uh, that argument about the relation of form to meaning in printed books, uh, I'd, I'd like to call up Sir Philip Sidney and John Locke. Um, the example that I've given you in the sheet will be simple enough, and uh, it will not be at all unfamiliar to those of you who have been involved in the process of modernization or have been reading texts in modernized form, which you may feel for one reason or another misrepresent the meaning of the original editions. Now, um, I won't worry about item number one to the reader, uh, but go on to item number two, three, and the rest of them. And you'll notice the concern in the first extract there Um, Number two, the division and summing of the chapters was not of Sir Philip Sidney's doing, but adventured by the overseer of the print for the more ease of the readers. In other words, here we have the printer of the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia in the 1590 quarto edition, considering the ease of his readers and modifying the form of presentation of his text quite explicitly and consciously um, in an endeavor to communicate the more easily uh, to his readers in his own time. He submits himself, therefore, to their judgment, and so on. Now, <clears throat> you'll notice that some of the things he has done can be eluc- can be seen in the illustration in three. This is just a, a representation the beginning of chapter four, and you'll notice at the beginning here of the text, above the text itself, we have the summary of episodes. Vasilius is hawking, Genesia is hurt by Demetrius, um, overturning her coach. And each of these has a superior figure after it, and in the case of the little extract we have, the number one is marginally placed in order that we may identify um, the episodes, the narrative episodes or points. And this allows, of course, not only for the heightening of these episodes in the reading so that we can accentuate or place great stress upon these narrative incidents, but also, of course, for their recall or recovery by selective rereading by virtue of the indexing function of the figures. Now, all of that must seem, I think, very intelligent and very helpful, um, but if you go to four, you will notice that in the 1593 edition, which is a folio edition, all of those features and a number of other textual ones are repudiated to the reader now reads the disfigured face, gentle reader, wherewith this work not long since appeared to the common view, moved that noble lady, the Countess of Pembroke, to whose honour consecrated, to whose protection it was committed, to take in hand the wiping away those spots wherewith the beauties thereof were unworthily blemished, etc., etc. And they regarded, uh, by the view of what was ill done, guided to the consideration of what was not done. In other words, there's a critical point of view being visited upon the 1590 text here and again, a conscious deliberative way um, which ends in the the, the, the reconstruction of the text and its articulation in a new form. Well now, uh, I don't want to go into the uh, motives in each case, I simply want to draw attention to the fact of consciousness about these presentational features. And now I just want to illustrate a couple of them. If we look at extract five, I simply want to illustrate the use of brackets, which a modern editor might well abandon, simply because they seem um, quite inconsistent with present forms of textual presentation. Now, the situation we have here is one in which Clinias is speaking to Basilius. But Clinias is a hypocrite. And so you have a double, a double meaning through this text. And Clinius is speaking here, but as mischief is of such nature that it cannot stand but with strengthening one evil by another and so multiply in itself till it come to the highest and then fall with his own weight. So to their minds, brackets, once passed the bounds of obedience, more and more wickedness opened itself so that they who first pretended to preserve you then to reform you, brackets, Oh, I speak it in my conscience and with a bleeding heart. Now thought no safety for them without murdering you. So as if the gods, breggers, who preserve you for the preservation of Arcadia, had not showed their miraculous power, and that they had not used for instruments both your own valour, not fit to be spoken of by so mean a mouth as mine. And some, oh, I must confess, honest minds, whom, alas, why should I mention, since what we did reach not the hundred part of our duty, our hands, oh, I tremble to think of it, had destroyed all that for which we have cause to rejoice that we are Arcadians. With that the fellow did wring his hands and wrang out tears, so as Basilius, that was not the sharpest piercer into masked minds, took a good liking to him, "'and so much the more as he had tickled him with praise "'in the hearing of his mistress.'" Now, the heavy flattery of Clinius towards Basilius, which is made more obvious by the brackets, ensures that we do understand quite clearly the two levels of meaning. There is the first straightforward narrative meaning, and there is the second ironic meaning, which is given to the narrative by virtue of the heavy use of brackets. Now, these two meanings by virtue of the presentation cannot be, for the reader at least, confused, because they are kept in two distinctive modes of presentation. The brackets function in a way which enables the reader to get both the narrative force of the text and the irony, knowing the hypocrisy at work here, whereas it enables the um, uh, 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 text also to present that element of the narrative which limits Basilius' understanding of the text. Now, um, the brackets, therefore, enable the reader, as it were, to peep behind the mask uh, uh, of of the narrative. Well, it's a very simple point, but the next two illustrations are equally simple. Um, In 6 and 7... All texts have to, which, which modernize have to make a critical decision in respect here of at least two words. If we look at passage number six, the last sentence of it reads, And the more jealous her mother was, the more she thought the jewel precious, which was with so many looks, guarded. Now, the point is here that looks functions in two senses, both as the word looks and as the word locks which it ultimately became, I think, in 1598. But in the 1590 and 1593 edition, the ambiguity is, in fact, preserved in what I think to be a fruitful way, that looks functioned as effectively as metal locks. So the locks with which the mother, Genesia guards her daughter, Philoclea uh, from her suitor, Zelmane are angry looks. But, in fact, if you present a modernised text, then clearly you lose that ambiguity. It must be one thing or the other. Now, in Seven, Thersus woos Carla with poesies of spring flowers wrapped up in green silk. Now, in modernising the word poesies, one must spell it P-O-S-I-E-S, posies, and thereby destroy the response which or the response which the word poetry implied in the spelling poesy uh, would allow in that sense therefore you destroy the association of flowers with the language of poetry and in de- suppressing the notion of poetry you also suppress the root meaning of that word or the origin of that word poen, the greek to create or to make and so therefore the creative and 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 and, and gracious gesture of poesies, uh, and it's something that we get in the word anthos, anthology, which is a gathering of flowers, is also lost to us. Now these, as I say, are extremely simple illustrations, but um, part of my grand campaign, one might say, against modernization, standardization um, in the reproduction of older texts. Well now, I want to turn to John Locke, who's also quoted in that uh, Uh, on on that sheet and the remaining extracts. Locke was so troubled by the difficulty he had in making sense of St. Paul's epistles that he decided to go right to the heart of the matter. In 1707, he published an essay for the understanding of St. Paul's epistles by consulting St. Paul himself. Um, A somewhat ambitious aim, perhaps, but that is the title of his work. Um, In this essay, he quite explicitly addresses the question of intention and the role of typographic form in obscuring or revealing it. More than that, he implies that if we don't get these things right, they can have the most serious social and political effects. Now, he ascribes his problems in reading reading the epistles, and here I quote from these, to the dividing of them into chapters and verses whereby they are so chopped and minced, and as they are now printed, stand so broken and divided, that not only the common people take the verses usually for distinct aphorisms, but even men of more advanced knowledge in reading them lose very much of the strength and force of the coherence and the light that depends on it. Locke objects to the eye, again I quote, being constantly disturbed with loose sentences that by their standing and separation appear as so many distinct fragments. As he develops it, his argument about editorial and typographic practice has far-reaching implications. If a Bible was printed as it should be and as the several parts of it were writ in continued discourses where the argument is continued, I doubt not that the several parties would complain of it as an innovation and a dangerous change in the publishing of those holy books. As the matter now stands, he that has a mind to it may at a cheap rate be a notable champion for the truth, that is, for the doctrine of the sect that chance or interest has cast him into. He need but be furnished with verses of sacred scriptures containing words and expressions that are but flexible. And his system that has appropriated them to the orthodoxy of his church makes them immediately strong and irrefragible arguments for his opinion. This is the benefit of loose sentences and scripture crumbled into verses which quickly turn into independent aphorisms. Well, Locke was something of an expert, one imagines, in... uh, The business of human understanding, or was it humane understanding? Um, Anyhow, those comments, I think, make it clear that Locke believed the form in which a text was printed not only radically affected, affected the ways it might be read, but might even indeed generate religious and civil dissension. He then raises the whole question of authorial intention. As printed in verse, the epistles frustrated those sober, inquisitive readers who had a mind like his own, I quote, to see in St. Paul's epistles just what he meant, whereas those others of a quicker and gayer sight could see in them what they please. For Locke, an essential condition of following a true meaning was a proper disposition of the text, so that one might see, again I quote, where the sense of the author goes visibly in its own train. He then adds, and perhaps if it were well examined, it would be no extravagant paradox to say that there are fewer who bring their opinions to the sacred scripture to be tried by that infallible rule than bring the sacred scripture to their opinions to bend it to them, to make it as they can, a cover and a guard for them. And to this purpose, it's being divided into verses and being brought as much as may be into loose and general aphorisms makes it most useful and serviceable. Now, one finds these points repeatedly confirmed, I think, in all popular debates on moral issues. The most recent in my own experience is that about a homosexual law reform bill currently before the New Zealand Parliament. And I believe New York is... uh, got this matter on its agenda at the moment. For nearly a year now, members of Parliament have shot biblical verses from one side of the house to the other, like paper darts in a schoolroom. Now, the scriptures, of course, undoubtedly have much to contribute to the serious consideration of such moral issues. But as used in fragmented form, their substance is very apt to become, in argumentative use, rather puerile. They demean in that form. They often demean uh, serious debate. And they generate passions, as Locke said, of the way in which scriptural texts did this in the 17th century. They generate passions which can lead, and in New Zealand indeed, have led to serious civil disturbance. It's an exact replay in my 1985 New Zealand of Locke's argument of 1707. Now, I'd like, having made that point about the way in which meaning is determined by these aspects of form, all of which is a defence of the physical book And I don't want to be thought in any way to feel that that... uh, You know, anyone to think that that, I believe that to be unimportant because I'm now going to swing away from it. But having made that point, I do want to move to another contrasting concept of text. Not one determined in these fine details, but one which, um, in its nature, is open, unstable, indeterminate. Now, in this sense, uh, the text is, I think, in some degree... Independent of the documents which, at any particular moment, give it form, and it's of course this aspect of the indeterminacy of text which takes the interest of modern literary theorists, rather than the determinist positivist attitude towards texts with which I've been perhaps um, dealing earlier. Now, to emphasise this is to recognise, I think, also that no text of any complexity ever yields a definitive meaning. The ostensible unity of any one contained text, be it in the shape of a manuscript, book, map, film, or computer-stored file, is ultimately an illusion. As a language, its forms and meaning derive from other texts. And as we listen to, look at, or read it, at the very same time, we rewrite it. The word text-book as first defined by Bailey in 1730, reminds us of this truth. I quote, "'Textbook in universities "'is a classic author "'written very wide by the students "'to give room for an interpretation "'dictated by the master, etc., "'to be inserted in the interlines.'" So each student makes his own text, and that is the origin of the word, "'textbook.'" Now, this notion of the indeterminacy of the text, of course, is one which we've long been familiar with, not from recent criticism, which very few of us read, um, but from Lawrence Stern, whom most of us live with. He made the point, I think, about the indeterminacy of texts in a beautifully urbane and comforting way in Tristram Shandy. Uh, But nevertheless, I think he makes it. No author, you will know the quotation, of course, no author who knows the just boundaries of decorum and good breeding would presume to think all. The truest respect which you can pay to the reader's understanding is to halve this matter amicably and leave him something to imagine in his turn as well as yourself. For my part, I am eternally paying him compliments of this kind and do all in my power to keep his imagination as busy as my own. Well, I gather from Terry that one of those high points in the discussion of marbling is the marbled page in Tristram Shandy, in Vol. Three, which Stern calls the motley emblem of my work. Each hand marbled page is necessarily different, and yet it's integral with the text as an assortment of coloured shapes which are completely non-representational, let alone non-verbal. A marbled page, as distinct from a lettered one, might even be said to have no meaning at all. Most modern editions, if they do attempt to include them and don't just give a note, will print a black and white image of them which is uniform in every copy of the edition. So the very uniformity of course uh, uh, discounts the, uh, the attempt at, at, at difference by doing that, of course, they subvert Stern's intention to embody an emblem of non-specific intention of difference or différence of undetermined meaning, of the very instability of text from copy to copy. Given that marbled paper was not all that common in books until the end of the 18th century, or certainly not at least as, as, as a textual feature, Stern was clearly using a most forceful and innovative example of expressive form. In one sense, Stern's principles and practice here confirm the idea of textual indeterminacy. But of course, in fact, in the very moment of denying the authority of the author the extraordinary specificity of a hand-marbled page deviously confirms it. Well, now, just to be provocative, I think... Sorry. <laughs> Let me go on to a, another aspect of indeterminate things. Um, no, perhaps I'll defer that for a moment and come on to it in a moment or two. Anyway, let's go back to Stern just, just, just for the moment. That recognition, that, that point that I've just last made, that even his affirmation of indeterminacy has a very strong intentionalist element, um, that, that, that recognition of the, uh, our recognition of that, I think, brings us in a way full circle. Whatever its metamorphoses, the different forms of any text, and the intentions they serve are relative to a specific time, place, and person. This creates a problem only if we want meaning to be absolute and immutable. In fact, change and adaptation are a condition of survival, just as the creative application of texts is a condition of their being read at all. The 1984 uh, critical and synoptic text of Ulysses, which um, John Kidd will be speaking about next week, uh, and about which there was considerable debate here last year, has physically changed every previous version in the act of replicating it. But it's become, in its turn, a new bibliographical fact. And it's these facts which constitute the primary evidence for any history of meanings. They alone make possible, in their sequence, any account of cultural change. To perceive from a bibliographical point of view, therefore, the ostensible contradiction between these two concepts of text... The closed one, with which I began, the open one, to which I alluded through referring to Stern, simply dissolves. It all depends upon the particular um, historic moment that interests us. And increasingly, we're becoming interested in their difference, which we establish, of course, by their comparison. Well now, Implicit in those comments are several points about the nature of bibliography, which it might perhaps be useful now to make explicit. First, I imply that it's committed to the description of all recorded texts. In principle, bibliography is comprehensive and therefore indiscriminate. It's not just about rare books or so-called literary texts. And again, on that pyramid there, I've tried to suggest, at least in, 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 in the form of printed text, a range um, which takes us right down to maps and directional texts. And it's only at the top of that pyramid that ambiguity about intention and so on is at all a problem. If you get down to the level of maps as texts, Uh, It seems to me a little absurd to say that the mapmaker did not intend that you should be able to follow a route from A to B, if it was your desire so to read the map, that you would get from A to B. Um, And uh, I think when you consider the whole range of printed texts, it becomes clear that the sort of high-level debates... Extraordinarily philosophical debates about intention, authorial intention, really um, are made possible only by the rigorous circumscription of the range of texts about which one is talking. Well now, um, (coughs) any national collection formed largely by a copyright deposit shows this non-elitist, non-canonical, non-generic, all-inclusive principle at work. In bibliography. International networking simply extends it. Ultimately any discrete, any individual bibliography of subject, person, or collection merely contributes to an ideal of universal bibliographical control. Because of this principle we are enabled um, to discover any possible relationship there might be between any one text and any other text. Whenever wherever, and, again, in whatever form it might be. In other words, bibliography, in this sense, is the means by which we establish, on the one hand, the uniqueness of any single text, as well as the means by which we're able to uncover all its intertextual dimensions. Now, here again, this word intertextual has its relevance in contemporary critical theory, uh, and I'm trying to find a bibliographical way of of meeting that circumstance. Second, because it's bibliography's job to record and explain the physical forms which mediate meaning, it has an interpretive function which complements and modifies any purely verbal analysis. In principle, it can fulfill this function in any of the modes in which texts are transmitted, not just printed books. It's therefore equally relevant as a discipline to any structure of meaning which is recordable and discernible. Third, bibliography impartially accepts the construction of new texts and their forms. The conflation of versions or the writing of new books out of old ones is the most obvious case. But the construction of systems such as archives, libraries, and data banks is another. In every case, the elements from which they are constructed are bibliographical objects, and the structures erected from them have something of the nature of meta-texts. For example, if you take the test case, um, um, then if you take, for example, uh, the personal library of a 17th century scholar, we become, I think, acutely aware um, when we consider that of the implications of its uh, sale and dispersal, because at a moment like that we realise that a metatext, namely the collection, which is distinctive and which has obviously biographical importance for the study of that scholar and his intellectual life, and therefore the intellectual life of the time, is in the course of fragmentation, uh, fragmentation disintegration, dispersal, and loss, destruction. And and it's at moments like that, I think, if you think in those terms, that you begin to realise that such collections have a kind of textual function by virtue of the elements that make them up and the structure which those elements make. Right. Well, for bibliography is of its nature, not merely as a partial effect of some more essential function, concerned specifically with texts as social products. The human and institutional dynamics of their production and consumption, here and now, as well as in the past, have therefore um, led me, as some of you may have heard on on, on Friday, to suggest that I think we might find in the phrase, a sociology of text, a useful description of its actual scope. Well, now, I must, I think, turn um, uh, more explicitly to my theme, because these are are assumptions upon which I'm proceeding now, uh, and offer some exemplary cases of non-book texts and at least try to set out my reasons for thinking that bibliography has a duty to these, that we must at least conceptually, whatever our special interests and however important rare books are, we must at least conceptually move from book to text. And in doing so, uh, it's worth recalling, I think, Hobbes's comment in the Leviathan, when we think of departing from print as the sacred form, it's worth recalling Hobbes, his comment that The invention of printing, though ingenious, compared with the invention of letters, is no great matter. But the most noble and profitable invention of all other was that of speech, consisting of names or appellations and their connection. Well, Hobbes reminds us here of what we are now having to relearn, that print is only a phase in the history of textual transmission and that we may be at risk of overstating its importance. The relatively recent introduction of printing into non-literate societies has seldom endorsed our traditional view of its efficacy as an agent of change. Even in our own society, oral text and visual image have not only enjoyed a continuity, albeit enhanced by print, but they have now resumed their status as among the principal modes of discourse with an even greater power of projection. The origins of that revival are much older than we might care to recall. The telegraph and photograph, telephone and phonograph, and even the motion picture itself are all 19th century inventions. In retrospect, the failure to develop forms of bibliographic control, adequate archiving, and proper public access on the model of the traditional library is, I suppose, understandable. But the cumulative force of those new media, together with even more recent ones like television, magnetic tape, optical disc, and computers, and the significance of the texts recorded in them, are now such that further neglect is, I believe, inexcusable. Just a little incident. If I were a social historian writing 20 years hence about the need for and the political appeal of, say, law and order policies in the 1980s, I'd find the texts of novels, plays, newspaper reports of, say, English football violence, something like that, Um, official records of the parliamentary debates and legislation, uh, these would be relevant, and I think they would mostly be accessible. But I do think also that these accounts might be quite incomplete without some account of television. I think in particular of a clip uh, from a news item that I saw quite recently just before leaving England, A class of small children were being asked if they actually liked to watch programmes which had lots of violent action in them. One small boy's eyes lit up as he told the reporter how exciting he found it, how it made him feel that he wanted to be strong like that, to run in and kick and knock people down. What do you want to be when you grow up? asked the reporter. Quick as a flash came the reply. A policeman. Well, I think it might be dangerous for me to interpret that text, um, uh, but I, uh, I am concerned to note that it is a text, and that future access to it might prove extremely instructive, not only about our present society, but about the nature of the society we may have become 20 years hence when that little boy has grown up but I couldn't be sure how easy it might be to see a full range of films or relevant television programs, and the chances of a particular news clip surviving in an easily accessible form are even more problematic. In many ways, the film and videotape are the most complete summation of a tradition of oral, visual, and written and typographic communication. As the forms of text most immediately accessible to non-literate or illiterate societies, They, perhaps, make the most urgent demands of traditional bibliography for its descriptive methods and its skill in conserving and accessing textual records. Films, after all, are composed, willed, concerted in their total organisation. As completed texts, they're objects more amenable to complete study than, say, unrecorded speech or a theatrical event. They have a physical length, a temporal span, and a repeatable presence. Their use of sound, image, color, and movement make them an ideal starting point for the extension of bibliographical principle from book to text. But I think perhaps if I'm going to talk about film, I ought to take a particular case. Um, An undisputed classic in which to explore these analogies, and indeed, perhaps the most recent uh, or or the most uh, appropriate one uh, in view of his recent death would be a film by Orson Welles and since it's one that may well be known to most of us I've taken Citizen Kane. Um, Certainly that's a film uh, which is one of the very few to be given high canonical status and to have therefore an unusually rich supporting literature. Well it opens and closes as you may remember with a literal sign an image that's both verbal and visual. It's posted outside Kane's immense mansion of Zanadu and reads, in full caps, no trespassing. Well, it's a playful image of enclosure, a, a detail of what I'd call the film's tight textual construction and of the intimate reciprocity of its verbal and visual text. Now, Zanadou's no true pleasure dome. Reviewing the film in 1946, Borges saw in it the familiar structure of the centerless labyrinth, a world of fragments without unity, a recurrent symbol of the archive, the library, the museum, posing the same challenge to order, creating the same fears of failure. With the prodigality of a Huntingdon or a Folger, or in this case even more pertinently, a Pierpont Morgan, Cain poured into Xanadu, specimens of the world's treasures in the hope of modelling in them, a system which eluded him in life. Lying old and ill in their still disordered midst, Cain dies muttering the word, and we all know, Rosebud. We hear it in his old, old voice at the start of the film, which then proceeds by flashback to recover the story of his life the business of what Pauline Cale has called Raising Cain. In hopes of pinning down the meaning of the enigmatic rosebud, a press reporter resurrects Cain's public life by running a nine-minute newsreel made up of clips of its main events. But this ostensibly factual documentary source of evidence, the contemporary record of news on the march, Turns out to be as fragmentary and as full of false emphases as the printed newspapers, which Kane himself published. As if to prove yet again that the truest poetry is the most feigning, Wells's own film supplants the newsreel as the source of truth. In doing so, it re presents the news in its true complexity, with a clarity and a penetration. Which shows up the coarse conventions at work in the documentary record. Now, I planted that word conventions there because we were dealing with them in the formal aspects of books earlier on. Now, Wells can represent and date those conventions all the more readily because flashback in films has always required a high consciousness of sign systems. In order to establish a difference from the narrative present. This takes us back to the Sydney and his distinction between two narrative forms. It's a resource that Woody Allen exploits to hilarious effect, I think, in Zelig, um, and of course also in the Purple Rose of Cairo. And uh, both of these, of course, uh, I mean, if you want to read Zelig as a kind of parody of historical scholarship, I'm pretty sure it'll stand up. Um, And, of course, uh, The Purple Rose of Cairo strikes me as a magnificent parody of all post-structuralist criticism. Anyhow, they're certainly a perfect antidote to an overdose of bibliography. Um, But my point, of course, is that films use, in a way more accessible than in books, formal systems of datable signs to recover the past. The conventions change with extreme rapidity, as we can tell from our own experience of reviewing an old film we'd thought quite natural when we'd first seen it a few years ago. What seemed once to have the innocence of truth betrays before long an embarrassing artifice. I'm sure that's an experience we've all had. It's even more disconcerting when you're watching a film which you'd really liked when you were younger in the presence now of a new generation of students on it's really release. And they all guffaw at the things that you took so seriously. The press reporter's search for the explanation of Rosebud in Citizen Kane is frustrated. So oral witness also fails there in its variant versions of the same effect. You remember the reporter goes around uh, trying to find out the story from a whole variety of people They all tell different stories, so the oral tradition collapses too. The film has a primacy over these, says Wells. The documentary facts, that is to say, of the newsreel, uh, that's not fiction, that's meant to be fact. The documentary facts don't explain it. The facts there are silent. Only as the film ends and we see a workman toss an old sledge into a fire do we catch a glimpse of the answer in the period lettering of the word rosebud painted on the sledge. OK, so it's a trite, sentimental, novelettish note. But in it, Cain's voice also becomes visible. The rosebud we hear at the beginning becomes the typographic sign we see at the end. The verbal image takes on graphic form and, like the script itself, becomes the necessary complement to the nonverbal, visual constructions which would fail of meaning without it. As a text, Citizen Kane generates a critical dialogue which has numerous affinities with literary criticism. In its counterpointing of an elusive past with a questing present, its contrasting of the sub-literary genres of newsreels and newsprint with the high culture of the canonical art film, in its posturing with hermeneutics as the search for meaning within a closed structure, It's as fruitful a subject for critical inquiry as most printed texts. If that seems too solemn an account of its range of interests, then we can find in its cinematic poetry as we can in the Dunciad a vulgar, rumbustious, and always entertaining satire on the muckraking press as one aspect of the social history of printing and publishing. Indeed, in its own attack on William Randolph Hearst, outsider as a significant source of innovation. The problems of funding, the threats of libel actions, the plot to buy up the film before its release and destroy the negative and all the prints, the formal features of the finished film, the semiotics of its textual detail, the constraints of censorship, indeed the film's effectual suppression during the McCarthy era the versions of the script and the subsequent re-releases, the manner of its distribution, the history of its reception, the annotational realm of Kane as a figure of Hearst, of the character Thatcher as J.P. Morgan Jr., as well as the elusive plundering of the film by a generation of other directors. The film is a total social fact and a total text. Filmmakers, spectators and analysts all think in terms of films as texts, because it alone, film alone makes sense, or that, that word for text, alone makes sense of the discrete parts of which a film's constructed. The concept of text creates a context for meaning. In other words, we're back to the initial definition of the text as a construction. This is the notion that I, I, I described on, on Friday. And that notion of the text as a construction, we're not concerned with the material, the specific material, but the fact that it is constructed and has a physical being. Well, however, we may wish to confine the word text to books and manuscripts. I think those who are working in films, increasingly those cartographers and so on, are working with maps, things like that, are now finding the word text um, indispensable uh, in their field. Well, there is, I think, no profit to be gained by disputing the point. One accepts that the word text now has a meaning which comprehends all these forms. And those who wish to contain it by confining it to books are, I think, like Milton's gallant man in Ariopagitica, who thought to pound up the crows by shutting his park gate. Now, film theory of the 1960s and 1970s was still strongly influenced by structuralism in one way which bears significantly, I think, on my argument about pure bibliography and the Greg Bowers sense and historical bibliography or the sociology of texts, as I was briefly expanding this on, on, on Friday. In discussing photography, for example, Roland Barthes drew a distinction between the finished artifact as a closed construction and its context the emission and reception of a photographic message both lie within the field of sociology. It's a matter of studying human groups, of defining motives and attitudes, and of trying to link the behavior of these groups to the social totality of which they are part. But then he said the message itself, on the other hand, had a structural autonomy in what it signified, and describing it was the business of semiotics. he's trying to draw this distinction between the two, and it's a distinction with which we've been grappling in bibliography, between bibliography and the history of the book. So, two, in film, Christian Metz drew a distinction between the film as a textual system, whether confined to a single film or extended to the infinite text of what we call genre, and the cinema, which is the whole social complex of a film's production and consumption. Well, it's my contention that this... Distinction, this attempt at a distinction, ultimately fails, since the definition of meaning in reading the conventional details of a text is logically dependent upon prior intention and social effect. Like typography as a conscious interpretive skill, every presentational feature of a film is calculated to express symbolic meaning. It's unceasingly deliberate in its selection, shaping, and pointing of significance. Now, since it bears on a parallel I'm suggesting between books and films as expressive forms, I'd like to take up this last point I've made with a comment from Greg Tolland, the director of photography for Citizen Kane. In How I Broke the Rules in Citizen Kane, he makes a distinction, I mean, he admits that there are more rules in, in using such a, a title, but he makes a distinction between photographic commands and conventions in shooting the picture. Photographically speaking, he writes, I understand a commandment to be a rule, axiom or principle, an incontrovertible fact of photographic procedure which is unchangeable for physical and chemical reasons. On the other hand, a convention to me is a usage which has become familiar through repetition. It's a tradition rather than a rule. But with time, the convention becomes a commandment, merely through force of habit. Now, I feel that the limiting effect of that is both obvious and unfortunate. With those definitions in mind, I'll admit that I defied a good many conventions in filming Citizen Kane. Now, that's precisely what I think Congreve and Thompson did in designing Congreve's works in 1710. They recognized certain conventions, which they then deliberately broke, defied, to achieve a new expressive form one much more pertinent to their purposes. Now, that analogy here with the technologies of print in relation to the finished book could be pushed further by a more technical discussion of how Wells altered our perception of reality by obtaining an unusual depth of field of the experiments with uh, high-speed film stock, the treating of the lens surface to eliminate refraction, the use of the twin-arc broadside lamp, the lap dissolves, and their relation to the foregrounding or backgrounding of images or the composition of shots. All those technical details are, of course, peculiar to the construction of film texts, not books. But their function is still to create meanings by the skilled use of material forms. In that, and in the relation of technology to expression, I think the parallel holds. But perhaps it may more readily be granted in the area of, as it were, bibliographical description. Pauline Kael has edited the final shooting script of Citizen Kane, dated 16 July 1940, and the subsequent so-called cutting continuity. She explains the difference between these two as that of before and after. The shooting script, I quote, is written before the film is shot. It's the basis for the film. The cutting continuity is a stenographic record made from the finished film. Cutting continuities tend to be impersonal and rather boring to read, rather like bibliographical descriptions, and if one examines only the cutting continuity, it's difficult to perceive the writer's contribution. Shooting scripts are much more readable, since they usually indicate the moods and intentions. Her use of the word intentions is only the most immediate note of a congruence, I think, with the traditional concerns of bibliography and textual criticism. The relationship of the shooting script to the finished script is much like that of a manuscript draft, not even perhaps a fair copy, to a printed text, whereas a cutting continuity comes closer to the iconic record of a bibliographical description. There are, I think, three versions of the shooting script of Citizen Kane as preserved in the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. Another, described as the second revised final script, dated 9 July 1940, and therefore, in fact, earlier than any of the other three, was submitted to the Production Code Office for clearance. It passed the test, except for some four or five details. One of them recalls the effects on Shakespeare's text of the Act of Abuses of 1606. I quote, "'Please eliminate the word Lord,' From Cain's speech, the Lord only knows. Another puts me in mind of Polonius, concerned lest his son enter such a house of sale, videlicet, a brothel, because there was such a place nominated as a locale for set C in the shooting script of Citizen Cain. But the production production code as well knew perfectly but the production code demanded that it be dropped. But what it's important to know, as an aspect of Wells's intention, his textual intention, is that the scene had only been written in for trading purposes in the sure knowledge that it would have to be cut, but in the hope that other less obtrusive items would then slip through, as they did. Now, Pauline Cale reprints the shooting script as revised, although there's no table of variants. What we do have are brief notes on departures from the script as the film was made. Then she also prints the RKO cutting continuity, dated 21 February 1941. That's the following year and about six months later. Eight months later. Its apparatus consists of a brief note, I quote, slightly amended to correct errors in original transcription. I'm not quite sure how that would meet standards of textual accuracy, Mr. John. That's where films are. Um, but for the rest, it represents a version of the full film text which in default of being the film itself is, I think, a bibliographer's dream of iconic accuracy. Like a description of ideal copy, it enables one to test all actual copies in the minutest details for sequence and completeness. For example, uh, to correspond with the authentic version, a copy must run for 1 hour, 59 minutes, 16 seconds. But I've seen one release for television cut to a deal less than that. There are seven reels, each divided into numbered scenes. The left-hand entries in the description are details of the length of each of these in feet. In the centre are notes on the scene, the cameras and the actors' movements, and then under-centred speech headings the dialogue. On the right is a description of the manner in which the scene is changed. Now to anyone familiar with the making or teaching of films, these details are commonplace. Again, my concern is merely to establish the point that the older disciplinary structures of bibliography in the description of books and the construction of texts from the extant versions are closely comparable to those required for film and that the common interest is at this stage served by acknowledging that our discipline comprehends them both. It's ironic that in an age when type for books is film set, And when, for purposes of storing the information content of books, we would now turn them into photographic images on plastic, the film itself should still be labouring for bibliographical and textual attention. Those which get it, like Citizen Kane, are the rare exception. In the sales room at the Museum of Modern Art the other day, um, I picked up a copy of McCann and Perry, The New Film Index, which details uh, writings on film for the period 1930 to 1970. It's a 40-year period. It has 12,000 annotated entries in 278 different categories. You try to find a single item in that book which deals with textual variation in the re-releases of films. Or the effects of censorship, not as a political question, but in the effects of censorship on the versions of the films which are released in different countries. I think you'll have a very hard job. Bibliographers... Oh, no, no, it's at this point, perhaps. I'll, I'll take up uh, my, my provocative insert. I don't know whether I've got time or not, but um, I think I must have expanded, expended half an hour. Then. Was it 30 minutes or was it more? OK. Right. Well, as I say, I wanted to push this point about non-book forms as texts, just to what might be thought as an extreme. Um, I wanted to ask if there's any sense in which the land, not even a representation of it on a map, but the land itself might be a text. In their study of the Australian Aboriginal tribe, the Arunta, Spencer and Gillen devote a chapter to totemic topography. Every prominent feature of the landscape in the Arunta country is associated in tradition with some totemic group. I quote: special rocks, caves, trees, and creeks that have a local totemic significance are dotted over the whole country. Now, it's not simply a matter of uh, their being sacred objects, although of course they may be that too, but of their having a textual function. These visual, physical features form the ingredients of what is, in fact, a verbal text. For each one is embedded in story, has a specific narrative function, and supports in detail the characterization, descriptive content, physical action, and the symbolic import of a narration. Reverse the telescope, of course, and it's just like the allegorical reading of landscape, and say, so is the fairy queen. At the western end of uh, the Mount Gillen range in Arunta land is a small block of stone called Gnoyer Merga. It stands, I quote, in the middle of a wide open flat associated with a great white dogman who came from Latrika, away to the west and wanted to kill all the dogmen at Choricha. when they saw him, The local Gnollia men sang out, "Una, binda, irina, numa." See, there is your camp. Sit down. So he sat down quietly and remained there. The stone arising to mark the spot the stone is rubbed by the old men, all the camp dogs begin to growl and grow fierce. The last man to rub it was one of the old Incas, who did so after the white men had come in order to try and make the dogs bite them. A Eurocentric point of view doesn't make it easy to accept that landscape has a textual function, but in that account, there's no way of dissociating its physical features from the narrative. The stone, in its exact position, means a story about the coming of the white men, and it implies a future in which the texts of the Arunta, the legends of their Dreamtime, will lose their power so much so that they dare not rub it anymore, lest it fail. Time in the future when their texts will be emended, Not by scholars retelling the story, but by mining companies blowing up mountains in the search for minerals. I don't think that's too dr- melodramatic a way of making a point about the nature of texts. Where the case for aboriginal land rights is being most successfully made against the literally entrenched opposition of those with mining rights, it's by virtue of the stories which the land holds, the codification and landscape of a whole tribal culture. It's the narrative power of the land, its textual status, which now supports a political structure dedicated to the belated preservation of the text which make up that culture. Now, if we can but think the question through that way round, I think not of books as the only form of textual artefact, but of texts of many different kinds and many different material forms, only some of which are books or documents, then we begin to see a principle at work which has, I think, quite staggering social, economic, and political implications. The argument that a rock in a runter country is a text subject to bibliographical exposition is absurd only if one thinks of arranging such rocks on a shelf and giving them class marks. But that's an aspect of our ah, blinkered state. It's the importation into a land of a single minded obsession, obsession with book forms, in the highly relative context of the last few hundred years of European history, which is the real absurdity. I'm reminded of a story uh, uh, told uh, about, uh, never I think by, a member of Jesus College, Cambridge, which by virtue of its succession um, of... of uh, this is, is, Jesus College was exceptional in this respect because it had this succession of uh, very long-lived masters and therefore a prodigious collective memory. A recently elected young science fellow, uh, so the story goes, was anxious to get a small reform through the governing body. having been warned that in the context of an Oxbridge College, nothing is trivial, from the placing of a comma to the misplacing of a napkin, um, he did his homework with great care. The time for the meeting arrived, and when his item on the agenda came up, he took some pride in assuring those present that, just in case his proposal might be thought uh, a little too radical, it uncovered an interesting precedent in the college archive. In fact, so keen had he been to reassure them on this point, he had searched through all the records for the last three hundred years and found nothing seriously inconsistent with his proposal. At which point the master lifted his head wearily and observed, but you would agree, would you not, that the last three hundred years have been somewhat exceptional. For the Maori in New Zealand, the arrival of books and documents has made the last 150 years more than somewhat exceptional. Despite the fact that Kerry Hume has just won the Booker Prize, um, texts in the form of written or printed documents are still widely distrusted. And this is mainly because of the strength of oral traditions, but there's another, I think, more sinister reason which some of you may recall from my talk here last time. For many Maori, the archetypal document, the Treaty of Waitangi of 1840, by which British sovereignty was secured over New Zealand, stands as a symbol of betrayal. It deprived them of their lands, and in taking their lands, it threatened their culture. This is not a question of arguing a case or proving a truth. It's a matter of living it, for me, daily, uh, living it at least daily uh, uh, with the consciousness of it in New Zealand. For the Maori, their relation to the land, epitomized in their phrase, Te tanga te Continues to be the most important subject of debate, and the land is significant not for its commercial value but for its symbolic status. A site these days is picketed and public works on it deposed, more often to preserve its significance in myth and legend, its narrative status, than out of material. When looking into the implications of introducing printing into New Zealand, the attempts to make the Maori literate, and European exploitation of the legal power of documents over agreements reached orally, I had occasion to look, as some of you will recall, at the Maori signatures appended in 1840 to the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, some are signatures in the usual sense of the word, but most are complicated configurations, and this was not a point that I made last time. A suggestion that I'm keen to explore further is that these forms of writing may in fact be representations of natural features of the tribal lands from which the signatories came. Now, for the British at the time, their textual significance was crucial, because in European terms, these little maps, if such the signatures are, signified assent to their assumption of sovereignty. But if for the Maori they signified tribal lands over which they thought they'd continue to have sovereign control under the Queen's protection, then these enigmatic signatures may yet prove to be territorial texts of some potency. Well, now, bibliographers, as pure bibliographers, may, of course, continue to insist on making a rigorous distinction between books as we commonly know them and non-book forms and on the restriction of pure bibliography to description and analysis of the book as a physical object. But libraries, and especially national libraries, with a responsibility to the culture at large, past, present, and future, are under significant pressure to evolve systems which accommodate these new forms of texts in a rational, coherent, stable, and yet socially accessible way. The pattern's already pragmatically there in the transformation of our personal and city libraries. Some of us still buy books, I suppose, Um, But we also borrow them and we have left to the public conscience and public institutions the responsibility for preserving the newspapers and periodicals that we, each of us, dispose of. Most of us have music and could have videos or discs or tapes and the machines required to hear and see them. We're beginning to store information at home in our own personal computer files and to buy access to other systems. That principle of buying access is simply an extension of the old idea of the lending library. We don't buy the book but the time to read it. With new forms of text, we buy in bulk the reading, viewing, or listening time in the form of an entrance fee to the cinema, a hireage fee for the disc or video, or a wireless and television fee for all or any text that might be made and transmitted in the year ahead. Or we pay an access fee for the information in a data bank. By decision of the United States Supreme Court, I think two years ago, it's no infringement of copyright here to record television programs in order to shift time. But in fact, the technical capacity most consumers now command as readers, listeners or viewers to copy texts in that way has also in part transformed the notion of purchase as a form of acquisition and the ways in which some of us at least form our personal libraries. I think it used to be called piracy. Such reflections form the terms of an all-too-familiar litany over the demise of the book. My concern is quite different. It's to find the continuity of these forms with past forms, of our new libraries with past libraries in their traditional function as collectors, conservators, classifiers, and communicators. Even the use of computer technology to supply information changes in only one respect, that traditional function. Whereas libraries have held books and documents as physical objects, computer systems have been mainly concerned to retrieve content. Library conservation and interlending policies are already pushing certain classes of existing document into that mode. And the creation and supply of new texts in non-printed form for direct consultation on screen or subsequent hard copy printout is, of course, increasing. The principle of record and access, however, of catalogue and holdings is not changed, but only refined. It's too seldom remarked, perhaps, that library systems have, in fact, influenced computing in the development of its capacity to process basic catalogue functions by symbolic listing, selection, and arrangement. It should also, I think, be remembered that it wasn't the sophistication of computing in its early stages which biased its use towards science, but its limited memory, and therefore its inability to handle the complexity and range of verbal language as distinct from combinations of the numbers zero to nine. Only as its memory systems have grown has the computer changed its nature from blackboard to book. It's at long last become literate and qualified to join other textual systems. It's well on its way uh, to learning to speak. And in time, I suppose, it will constitute an oral archive as well. But one consequence of the computer's retarded development for many years has been a much slower recognition of the essential consonants of its functions, like that of other non-book texts with the traditional purposes of libraries. Large, long-established institutional structures are not notable for their ability to adapt rapidly to changed conditions. But if a common principle can be perceived and acted upon, it does at least open up to us, I think, a politically important leadership role, certainly for the humanities. Once that's acknowledged, it's not a question of creating a monolithic national bibliographic institution with the curatorial role of preserving all forms of text, when I mean, the National Sound Archive in Britain is part of the British Library, but the British Film Archive is not. What's important... Is the promotion of inter institutional collaboration in the pursuit of a common aim, and the proper provision at last for the archiving, bibliographical study, and accessing of the new kinds of text. Now, I think I ought perhaps just to, to leave out a fair bit of this. Um, so I am going over rather badly. And I think I'll leave it at that point for that. Um, But I have one example on computing that I'd like to to give you, if I may. So I'll come in on on that. Just to take up this point about computing and to to mention to you uh, a comment on it and on Antonio Panizzi, which Mr. Alex Wilson, the British Library, made in a BBC radio programme recently. I'll just quote from that, and here speaking of, of, of Panizzi, Mr. Wilson said, I think if Panizzi were alive today, uh, as I say to some of my tra- more traditionally-minded colleagues, um, he would be more radical, more adventurous, more outward-looking, have the biggest computer of the lot. He was a man for change and adaptation as well as a man for tradition. Now, that seems to me absolutely right. And Penizzi, who did, after all, edit Ariosto's Orlando Furioso and Boiardo's Orlando Enamorato, would not, I think, have simply accepted computing as just another technological aid, one more efficient than others for doing certain jobs. He'd have asked, on what unifying intellectual principle does it relate to books? Now, the British Library reading room itself, I suppose, has become uh, the figure of Penitzi in expressing his perception of the unity of knowledge, which is really the question I'm addressing in respect of bibliography. But I'd like to remind you of its much earlier expression by Penitzi in his study of Ariosto, and I quote here, the general position has been that the Orlando Furioso is a collection of several poems on distinct subjects. And the number as well as the denomination of these subjects is determined according to the idea which each critic or commentator has formed of the work. But no one has hitherto tried to discover whether there might not be in the Orlando Furioso one main subject on which all the others depended or from which they were derived. Whether the different branches of this stately tree, although so widely spread, might not be all proceeding from a single stem concealed from the eye by their own luxuriant foliage. Now, if I can apply this figure, as it were, in a kind of Renaissance manner, that principle of unity Panizzi was seeking in the Orlando Furioso is no less the subject now, I believe, of bibliographical inquiry. What seem to be the different branches of each medium each with its own luxuriant foliage. These are the several media in which texts of all kinds are stored and transmitted. But the single hidden stem, the source of the animating principle which flows into each different branch, is not the book, but the concept of a text which may assume book form, but may assume film form, may assume almost any number of physical forms. To apply that figure even more specifically I will conclude with a recent example which reflects on the relationship between computers and books and may, at least if we were in England, affect any one of us. As of 11 November, under the Data Protection Act, some 400,000 computer users in Britain were required to register in compliance with the law to protect individuals from the misuse of personal data stored on computer. As from March this year. Anyone can seek compensation through the courts for damage and distress caused by the loss, destruction, inaccuracy, or unauthorized disclosure of information, and they can demand that the text be amended by having inaccurate records corrected. As from November 1987, they'll have right of access to personal information stored about them on computer, but those rights of legal redress, correction, and access do not apply to the identical information, the same text, if it's stored in the traditional written, typewritten, multi layered paper file. Now, one can understand, of course, the arguments from expediency for such a distinction considerations of ownership, scale, ease of access, and so on. But if any of any two individuals differently affected by the different manner in which information about them is stored, one might well feel that some central, unifying concept of the text had broken down here. One individual will have access and legal redress and can revise the text. The other will have none and can't. So in arguing for the centrality of a textual principle in bibliography, whatever specific form that text may take, I'm not denying (coughs) that we must ultimately return to the fine detail of each kind of text, to each of those physical forms in which we're individually expert, and those of us here to books and manuscripts, but just that it now seems more needful than ever to recover a principle of unity which informs them all. In that rich text of his which um, deals with so many of these questions, Milton's Aria Pagetica, Milton reassures those made anxious by the division of truth into parties and partitions, fools he exclaims to one of them, see you not the firm root out of which we all grow, though into branches. Thank you.